My name is Tracy, and I am an alcoholic. And because of this wonderful program uh, that has introduced me to a God in my life, uh, I haven't had a drink since April the 5th of 1985, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I don't think I said I hate Italian. I I think I just said I didn't care for it a lot, but that I would find some spaghetti or something (laughs) if I needed to. So, uh, (sighs) didn't get the nap either. So, (sighs) I, uh, I want to thank the committee, um, for asking and, uh, Dave for calling me and, um, you know, I have just had so many blessings uh, since I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, I would have said that I didn't know anyone uh, in AA from Missouri. And um, I got the privilege to go to Joplin uh, to the Summer Hummer and um, met some people there and played golf with some crazy people and uh, just had a really, really good time. And I've had uh, a nephew in Missouri that um, maybe has a little bit of a drinking problem. Uh, it appears so, at least from the, our point of view. And uh, although it's not really ever seemed to appear so to him. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of uh, cool that I, I know somebody from Missouri now. Not that I think that I'm ever going to need them necessarily, but... And I'll be darned if, like, it wasn't long after uh, going to Joplin and meeting some, some folks from there that uh, I actually got a phone call from my sister um, and said that uh, her son thought that maybe he might have a problem with alcohol. And... Uh, She said, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't really know even, you know, what you can do uh, from there in Fort Worth, Texas. And I said, sis, call him uh, and tell him that I will be calling him within just a few minutes. And I picked up the phone and I called Dave H. and uh, told him what the situation was. And he said, I will get someone. And... I immediately picked up the phone and I called my nephew and was proceeding to try to tell him that someone from AA in Missouri would be contacting him pretty soon. And before I could really get all of that out of my mouth, um, he said, I have another call coming in uh, from such and such name. And um, I said, that's him. That's him. Hang up with me and go talk to him. I was reading... Uh, on the badge tonight and actually on the flyer as well. We are responsible for AA's future. Let it begin with us. And, uh, you know, the man that reached out to my nephew that day was Rondell, and I'll never forget that. So from where I sit, um, it does begin with you, and it begins with me. Um, And I take that responsibility very, very seriously. Um, I think about the people that were here when I got here in 1985, and um, there's a lot of those people that aren't here anymore, and um, a lot of them have died and uh, maybe moved to some other areas. And I look at the the women that are ahead of me in this path now, and my sponsor, and uh, you know, and she's terminally ill, and uh, you know, the 
that day will come uh, for that. But, uh, you know, it's like there are so many people ahead of me, and I think sometimes um, I can take that for granted, and I can know that I can pick up that phone at any time and call one of them uh, to tell me, hey, where was that at in the literature? You know, I know you told me that last year and last week, (laughs) but where was that again? And, you know, I think it's really kind of hit me over the last few years the responsibility that I need to be stepping in um, and undertaking and understanding that, uh, you know, it's been really great that I have those uh, ahead of me and will continue to have those uh, ahead of me to, um, you know, to direct me and to guide me, um, but also the sense of responsibility uh, that I have for making sure um, that those ones that are coming up behind me, uh, that they know our literature um, and that they are willing Um, and able to be there for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's amazing when you kind of hang out with your people. I think one of the reasons fellowship is so great is that uh, sometimes you find out things about sponsees you didn't know. And uh, we were sitting at dinner one night, and I made some comment about uh, getting a phone call in the middle of the night, and one of my sponsees popped up at Star 11. She goes, I'd have never heard that phone call. I turned my phone off at night. My sleep is important to me. Really? (laughs) Really? Not right then, not in front of everyone, but on the way home, I'm calling. Be sure that that phone is turned on. Be sure that it's right next to your bed. Be sure that if I need to call you at 2 o'clock in the morning that you're picking up the phone. Um, And I'm just so grateful that uh, I've had members not only tell me uh, what to do, but take my hand and show me. Um, And I am just... I'm so forever, forever grateful for that. You know, on page 164 of our book, um, it talks about some awesome things. And it says that uh, our book is meant to be suggestive. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. So I hope to be able to share just in a a little bit of a general way what it was like, what happened, and um, the great events that have come to pass for me. One other thing that I wanted while I was thinking about it, um, as you were standing up here, uh, Josh, and and reading, and uh, we actually visited for a minute before the meeting got started, and uh, he he actually shared with me that um, he had been in prison, and um, I was asking him about how long that he had been sober, and, you know, was he sober during any of the point of the time that he was in there? And, you know, seeing him and hearing him share um, his experience, Seeing him looking the way that he does tonight, all dressed nice and and in that suit and in that tie and getting up behind a podium to be of service to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, it gives me so much hope for that son of mine that's sitting in prison that maybe one day, maybe one day, he can be like you.
gosh, I'm done with all of that already. Oh, okay. East Texas. I'm an East Texas girl. I grew up, uh, was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, but got to East Texas, and uh, I, so I talk weird. Everybody in my husband's family makes fun, and, you know, they jest a lot that The other day I was in a conversation with my husband, and I really wasn't thinking much about what I was saying, which is pretty normal for me. And I, what I said was, you know, I thought I was, I think I thought I was further along on that than I was. And it was quiet in the car for a minute, and then I hear my husband, you think you thought, so you weren't sure that you thought? I mean, you know, so don't be surprised what might come out of my mouth. Uh, but that's just kind of what we do in East Texas, or at least what I do. And, uh, you know, it was uh, my brother and sister are 15 and 17 years older than I am, so I was pretty much raised an only child. Um, I come from a Southern Baptist home. I don't know if I need to say much more about that. Um, <laughs> Probably not. Uh, we, uh, we were church all the time. I mean, if the doors were open, we were there. Uh, we even had a key. So, you know, we were there sometimes before the doors got open. Um, you know, I was raised in a home where, you know, I knew that they loved God. Um, the thing that kind of always I was never quite sure about, though, is it always seemed to me it was more important how we acted outside of the home than what went on on the inside of the home. And it wasn't like there were these horrible, terrible, tragic things going on in my home. Certainly not anything like what I've heard you share in meetings. Uh, you know, some of you growing up in active alcoholism, and that was not my experience. Um, it's kind of interesting to me, though, after hearing some Al-Anon speakers through the years. By the way, if you're an alcoholic and you're maybe newer in the program or maybe not, but you don't know this, the Al-Anon meeting that, that's going on here this weekend, you're allowed to come. <laughs> Just thought I would tell you, I didn't know that for a number of years. Um, and from the attendance at Al-Anon meetings that I come to in conferences now, I don't think that you, some of you might know that you can attend, but you can. Sometimes they're the best speaker the whole weekend. So, you know, I'm just saying. So anyway, um, so, you know, I grow up, but my family, turns out, was affected by alcoholism. Uh, My mom's mom and dad both drank. There was alcoholism in my dad's family. And we talk about it, we hear it talked about, at least being a family illness, a family disease, and how it affects everyone in the family. And it certainly affected, obviously, the people, my mom and dad. And even though there was no drinking in my home, looking back now, I see that there was a lot of uh, the disease of alcoholism and its effects in my home. My dad was someone that didn't know how to deal with his anger. So when he got angry, he just didn't speak to you. And it didn't matter who he was angry at. He didn't speak to any of us. And, uh, you know, and that could go on for days. It could go on for weeks. Um, You know, I remember that was just devastating to me as a kid. Um, I didn't grow up with any cussing uh, in my home. No smoking, no drinking, no cussing. Um, I've never heard my mother say a cuss word and my dad only twice. Both of them were in reference to me. (laughs) I do tend to even make the best of men tend to cuss when I'm involved. And uh, (laughs) that has not necessarily stopped either. But uh, so, you know, I'm growing up in this home. My mom, uh, she's a stay-at-home mom. would have preferred probably for her to go on to work. Uh, I love my daddy. I was definitely a daddy's girl. Um, You know, and just 
just growing up, there was always a feeling in me that I don't know where it came from, that I just had this feeling that there were going to be expectations of me that I was not going to be able to live up to. Don't know where that came from. Um, I really don't even think it was anything that they did or said uh, as far as my parents. Just somehow it was in there within me. Um, There also seemed to be within me, which I don't still to this day necessarily understand where it came from, but just a huge amount of fear. Uh, Fear about what you thought of me. Fear if you thought of me at all. Fear if you didn't think of me. Um, Just totally consumed in fear. Um, When I found the alcohol at the age of 12, I was going to my best friend's birthday party, um, and that's where I had my first drink. And the magic of alcohol um, happened for me immediately. When I took that first drink, once I got past how bad it tasted um, and took a couple of more swigs, the most amazing thing happened. And I think uh, Doctor's Opinion describes it better than I can when it talks about the sense of ease and comfort. And still to this day, when I read through that part of the book with somebody new, it still makes me take this really deep breath, like, ah, because that's how I felt when that alcohol got into my system. All of a sudden, it wasn't important to me whether you were thinking about me, whether you weren't. I was sure you were now, though, and I was also certain that it was good, and, you know, things were just great, and I was just the life of the party, and I had a great time. I blacked out on my very first drunk, so I didn't know that that was unusual. Um, I got up the next morning, uh, And, man, all I could think about was when am I going to get to do that again? It was just the most amazing thing. At 12 years old, I did not become a daily drinker um, at all. But I can tell you from that moment... For a very long time, my life and my thinking revolved around alcohol. If it wasn't the actual drinking of it, it was the planning it. It was the staying out of trouble so that I could go out on the weekends and drink it. Who's going to buy it for us? I mean, there was it was a big production, you know, to get drunk at 12, and I loved every second of it. Um, I graduated from high school, uh, went off to college. My parents uh, provided me with the opportunity to get an education, um, and what I did was I drank it away. Um, I got to college. All of a sudden, I didn't have the rules and regulations that I had lived with my entire life. Um, And the party was on. Um, I was drinking uh, from the time that I got up in the morning until, uh, you know, I passed out uh, at night. Um, It's everything's very hazy when you're a blackout drinker like me. All I know is that at some point I was going to school, and then at some point I wasn't going to school anymore. Um, At some point I was a cocktail waitress. Um, At some point I got promoted to bartending. Um, I am not going to apologize because I got to tell you, bartending early 80s, I think it had to have been the best gig ever in the world. Um, I mean, it was not only accepted that we drank, uh, you know, it was promoted. I mean, we all came in first thing, and first thing for me was 10.30 in the morning because it was a restaurant bar, and I had to get the bar ready to open at 11. We had our first drink of the day. Um, And then, you know, I was off and running. Um, I would drink all day long. I would get off work. I would go to now a friend's bar, and I would drink at their bar until I passed out. I would go home and do this all over again. Um, I got my first DWI somewhere along the lines. Um, (laughs) It really shouldn't have happened. Though, uh, and <laughs> the reason I say that is because the next morning, uh, my attorney—I used to say that and just kind of leave it there, like I actually had someone on retainer. Really, he was just a very good customer at the bar, and uh, so my attorney 
came and got me out of jail and we went to go get my car from the impound lot and it wouldn't start. It was out of gas. So in my mind, it's like, oh my gosh, if I'd just gotten another hundred yards, for God's sakes, I couldn't have gotten a DWI. Um, and so, you know, that was just an accidental mishap. Um, should have never happened. My solution to that was to not drink and drive. So I left my car sitting at the bar for two weeks and got rides home. Um, after a couple of weeks, the bar said I needed to move it. I got to drink and drive again. Um, and so I went back to doing that. Um, some people that I knew were getting into some serious trouble. Um, and I thought that maybe a change was in order. I, uh, I remember one day I was at the restaurant and I was drunk as usual. It was a day off. And uh, my mom called me at the bar restaurant to tell me that my dad was coming to bring me my bed. Um, I don't know how they knew I didn't have a bed. Uh, I, I don't really remember much about it except that I thought, my gosh, I'm drunk. I've got to try to sober up. I go to my apartment. Um, I, I must have passed out. I came to with some banging on the door. Um, I opened the door and my dad was there and he was upset, angry. So we don't say a word. Uh, I follow him out. We get the bed. We bring it inside. I'm certain that knowing my dad that we probably set that bed up. Um, and then he went to leave, and we have not uttered a word to each other. And I remember him opening the door, and he turned back to look at me, and I could only see one side of his face, but there was a steady flow of tears streaming down his face. And he turned and he walked out that door, and I remember standing there thinking, what is your problem? Really, what is your problem? I mean, granted, I'm not living the life that you would have me live, but who wants to live that life? I'm living the fun life, you know? And besides that, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. I'm not hurting anybody but me. I mean, I live two hours away from your little precious town of Dangerfield where you would be worrying about your reputation. Nobody knows what I'm doing here. Um, certainly, I understand today probably at a level that uh, I may not I could have ever gotten to, um, just in the fact of, you know, watching my son go down that path as well and sitting back watching him only hurt himself. Um, so anyway, I, uh, I, I remember that like it was yesterday. And, uh, but, you know, I just kept on doing what I was doing until I decided I needed to make a change, and so I decided to move back home with Mom and Dad. It was, it was the only option I really knew of to get away from some of the people that I was associated with and my fear of getting into trouble like they were getting into trouble. So I moved back home with Mom and Dad, and I made a very conscious decision, and that is I need to not drink and live at their house. Um, and that's what I did for 30 days. Oh my gosh, it was the worst 30 days of my life. I mean, and I think that's such a big part of how I understand about alcoholism today. You know, our literature talks about and goes through the different types of drinker, you know, uh, whether it's just the occasional social drinker or whether it's the hard drinker. The hard drinkers are tricky because they can sometimes, by outward appearances, really look like one of us. But the real key to it is, is that if they are told, hey, you know, I love you, honey, but if you don't stop drinking, I'm going to leave. Oh, I got to stop drinking. And their life gets better. You know, or you know what? You've got some serious medical problems as a result of your drinking. You know, you need to stop drinking or you're going to die. Oh, I got to stop drinking. And they stop drinking. They get better. They get better physically and they, their life gets better. For me, because 
I always sensed alcohol was not the problem, and I really didn't know how accurate that I was because it really was my solution to living. It is what, I mean, the ease, that ease of comfort. Oh, my gosh, I can deal with life when I have alcohol in my system. Without any sufficient substitute to alcohol, I, I mean, then I am just left crazy, nuts, restless, irritable, and discontented, our book talks about. And that was me for that 30 days. And I tried to stay really, really busy during that 30 days and just really tried to outrun myself. Um, I went over to help a friend move, and she held up a bottle and said, let's have a drink. And I said, you know, I'm not drinking. And she said, I know, and I'm really proud of you, but I've only got enough in here for us to have one drink. And I share this with you because it, honest to God, is my one and only story of meaning to have one drink. Um, I had that one drink. All I know is I came out of a blackout in my car on the grass on the side of the country road facing the wrong way for the side of the road I'm on. Not one time did I stop and think, gosh, I wonder how I got here. Ooh, I wonder, did I have a wreck? Not worried about any of that. What I am really concerned about is the fact that I have spilt my drink. And, I mean, I am just furious about it. And (laughs) I was... I was up telling my story one day, and I don't know why, but all of a sudden this thought came to me that maybe I really hadn't spilled my drink. It seemed to me that I had because my pants were wet. (laughs) But, and it just hit me like right in the middle of telling this story, but it's my story, so I I say I spilled it, so I spilled it. And uh, so... So now the frantic search begins in the car, looking between the seats, under the car mats, just to try to find enough change to get the next drink. I don't know anything yet about phenomenon of craving. I don't know that it's the first drink that gets me drunk, not the last, not the tenth, not the fifteenth. It's the first one, because the first one sets off in people like me this phenomenon of craving that says you have got to have more and more and more. Combine that with the obsession of the mind, and it is an absolute deadly illness that we deal with. And but I'm frantically looking for that change. I find enough change to get one more beer at that store. Um, I remember coming to uh, in a bathroom of a bar and the next thing I know I came to uh, at a actually at somebody's house I knew, which was kind of a novel thing. And uh, but all I can tell you from that moment till I got to you for the next six weeks, I was not to draw a sober breath. And that's really saying something about the desperate place that I was in because I'm living at my mom and dads and I am drinking nonstop all the time and I don't care. Um, I mean, I, I have been taught to care what everybody else, especially them think. And I just don't care. I don't know what has changed. I don't know what has happened, but I'm driving all the way from Dangerfield to Kilgore, which is probably an hour, hour and 10 minutes to be sitting in the liquor store parking lot at 7:45 to go in at eight o'clock to then sit in my car all day and drink. I'm the social butterfly. I'm the bar drinker. I'm the gal dancing on tables. In the last six weeks before I was here, I was not to draw a sober breath. And I sat in my car I got my second DWI, and that is my what happened. Uh, I came to in jail, 
Um, the next morning, my parents got me out. Uh, it, that was on a Saturday morning. This was horrible because now we're rolling into Sunday. Um, my dad gets up and goes to the First Baptist Church where we've gone my entire life. Um, I still don't know to this day whether my mom didn't want to go because she was embarrassed or she just figured at this point the Baptists weren't getting it done. And so <laughs> she took me down the road to the Life Tabernacle Church. Now, at the Life Tabernacle Church, they lay hands on you. And please, please. Please, Lord, don't hear me saying anything bad about that, because I have not had a drink since I got laid on hands, you know. <laughs> I mean, so I am not talking badly about it, but I can tell you the little Baptist kid was a little freaked out by what was happening. And, you know, the amazing thing, I went to that Life Tabernacle Church one time, uh, and I ended up in treatment that next day on that Monday. Uh, I didn't see none of them First Baptist Church people that came to see me at the treatment center. None of them came. But those Life Tabernacle people, they came up to the treatment center. They circled me up again, lay their hands on me. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, I haven't had a drink since then. Now, I don't know 100% for sure that that's all that it was that did it. So I keep coming just in case. I still maybe need a little something. But I'm, who knows? There's some powerful stuff out there. And uh, so, but I, what happened is on that Monday, my mom drove me to Kilgore to go to school. And I couldn't get out of the car. And God literally took over. And what I heard myself saying to my mother is, if I get out of this car, I'm going to drink. She freaked out, drove to a payphone, looked in a payphone phone book, found the closest psychologist office she could find, and we drove straight there. Um, and by 6 o'clock that evening, I was in PNS Hospital in Shreveport, Louisiana, in the detox ward. I'd have been there sooner, but we had to go shopping. I had to look good, you know. <laughs> I'm going to rehab, and I'm Je- but I'm still Jess and Betty Wilson's daughter. And I mean to tell you, I had some fine clothing for treatment. I had... I had dresses and slips and hoses and heels for family week, you know, to make sure that I was looking good when they were there, especially. You know, that's not even really the silliest thing to me. The silliest thing to me is the fact that I actually wore it. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. And so anyway, so I go to treatment and, uh, 30 days in treatment, I'll tell you the most amazing thing that happened to me in treatment. Number one, they took me to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and introduced me to you. Number two, while I was there, every Friday night they had a meeting where, uh, while I was there, it was a husband and a wife, typically, that came. where uh, one would get up and share their story for 30 minutes, and then the other one would get up, and it would be an AA member and an Al-Anon member. Um, It so happened that during that month, uh, all of the people that were there were from the same home group. The Al-Anon group met at the same place that the AA meeting did. Um, I love that because it... That's family recovery. I just absolutely love, you know, having that Al-Anon meeting at the same time that that closed AA meeting is happening. We would all get together then and go fellowship after the meeting. And, you know, for my first AA birthday, I had so many, you know, uh, handmade uh, gifts uh, that the Al-Anon, uh, you know, family members uh, made for me uh, at my birthday celebration on my one year um, but I, you know, that was what the gift was. And I got out of treatment and I immediately found that, that home group that they went to and I made it my home group. And I don't think I told you, but I met a guy in treatment <laughs> and, uh, uh, we got married at 15 months of sobriety. I don't recommend that. I'm not one of those people that goes, well, you know, I did that. So I really can't say for you not to do that. No, I absolutely tell people don't do that. Um, 
I have experience that says there's good reason why they tell you not to do that. Sick attracts sick. Do not ever think, and I don't care if you've got 10 years of sobriety, do not ever think that sick and healthy is going to equal healthy. <laughs> it just doesn't. As a matter of fact, what I came to find out is that if they are sick and they're attracted to me, that means I'm sick. <laughs> I, you know, and I found that out because I had a very loving sponsor that I went to at one point and said, hey, you know, so-and-so asked me out and I'd really like to go out with him. And she said, no, uh, you're not ready to go out. And I said, why? And she said, because he asked you out. And uh, if you're sick enough for him to be attracted to, then he's too sick for you you to go out with, if you can keep up with that. So uh, anyway, but obviously that's what I did. Uh, we got married. We moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we got pregnant. Oh, I don't know, three months later. It's what you do. And we're the happy little picket fence AA family. How cool. We met in treatment. We're just the little happy family and we're going to meetings all the time and uh, I'm five, six months pregnant and my husband calls me to tell me that he has relapsed. I am furious. I, not not for him, not for him. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. How did this happen? My God, look at what he did to me. I mean, I am pregnant with your child. I am your wife. How could you do this to me? I hadn't grasped the concept yet of love the alcoholic. Hate the disease, but love the alcoholic. I hadn't got there because as far as I was concerned, he did this to me. Um, I made a... You know, even though by outward appearances my marriage was not done because I continued to live, we lived together. Um, we stayed in the same house. We had baby. Um, but the moment that he told me that he had relapsed, I was done. I was just done. I'm one of those people, you hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. I don't put myself emotionally in a position to be hurt again. That would be on me. Um, so I shut down, basically, in that relationship. Um, I used to kind of make it sound like that the reason that relationship didn't work is because he relapsed. The truth is, is that I'll never know. Um, I never gave it the shot of working. The day that he called me and told me that he had relapsed, he went to a meeting and he reestablished. Um, so I'll never know. All I know is that it was over for me. Um, it took me six months to get him out of the house because <laughs> I don't want to leave. That'd make me look bad. You know, he needs to go. He's the one that relapsed. He needs to walk away from the home. Um, took me six months after Aaron was born to get him gone, but I finally got him there. And that afternoon I had a date. You know, I mean... <laughs> I don't know that I don't know how to be by myself. I don't know that. I don't know that really what that means is that I'm extremely, extremely sick. Um, I ended up in a relationship with another one of us. Let me just say, I am married to my third one of us currently. Um, and there are some really awesome just guys with integrity, um, some of the most incredible men that I have ever met in my life. I have met in Alcoholics Anonymous, but there are some really, really sick ones too. So <laughs> just be very careful. And I'll tell you the other thing that I found interesting, um, the, this third one that I married, um, it was the first time that my sponsor and my parents were both happy. <laughs> so the first time uh, my parents were a little leery and my sponsor wasn't happy at all. The second time my parents were absolutely not happy and well actually neither was my sponsor then either. So 
I'm just going to try to get this so that you can't use this same uh, justification. But, you know, like, well, they just don't understand him. They don't know him like I know him. Um, if those are the kind of things going on in your head and all the people that you love and you know love you um, are shaking their heads, pay attention. Pay attention. Um, but I didn't, uh, you know, I, the second one I didn't marry, but it was the most physically abusive relationship I've ever been in in my life. And I did that stone cold one day at a time, not drinking an Alcoholics Anonymous. I had learned how to talk a very, very good program. You listen to me in meetings and it sounded like I really, really had it together. But the truth was, is that when, you know, when everything was going my way, everything was great. Absolutely great. It was only when things were not going my way, when I couldn't seem to get things under control, when I couldn't seem to get people to do what they were supposed to be doing, it was when the rubber really met the road that I had nothing. I had nothing to draw from in the way of tools of how to get myself out of it. Did I have a sponsor? Yes. I mean, and the only thing I think that saved me during that period of time is the fact that I would be extremely honest with her. Um, I didn't do what she said to do a lot of times, but I was always very honest with her. Call her up. Hey, Sponce, just want to let you know, sliced his tires. Yep, sure did. Nope, not just one. Got two of them. Just thought I'd let you know, and I'd hang up the phone. I mean, I'm just, whatever I did, I'm telling her about it. Uh, I had so many amends to make, like, after I got sober. It was ridiculous. But I'm being honest with her. I'm not doing what she's telling me. And see, there's this other thing. I told you I was raised in that Southern Baptist home, and I knew of a God. I was introduced to um, a God. In June of 1980, in that First Baptist Church, I was standing in the choir loft, and a man came in that church, and he had lots of guns. Um, he had clips of ammunition. He had handguns. He had big guns with bayonets on the end of them. And he came in that church, and he shouted, this is war. And he turned and he just started firing in the church. Just started firing. When it was all said and done that day, there were five that were killed and several others that were injured. One of the ones uh, that died that day was a seven-year-old little girl named Gina Lynham that I had babysat the entire summer before. It wasn't that tragedy that caused me to have a problem with God. It just wasn't. If, if you've been in AA any length of time and you've had something happen that's really difficult in your life, to watch this fellowship surround and pick you up or carry you if need be through things is an incredible thing to watch. I mean, it's amazing. And that's kind of how it felt when this happened at our church. People were really trying to, to help us and to be there for us. It took probably 18, 20 months before before this guy got back to Dangerfield to get ready to stand trial. There was a woman going to see him every day. One day she came out and she said, praise God, he's been saved and he's going to heaven. Now, based on what I had been taught growing up in that church, if what she said had happened, had indeed happened, then he was going to heaven. And I could not reconcile a loving, caring God to a God that would allow that man to be in heaven where I knew that Gina was. I just couldn't get there. We agnostics talks about trying to go from that, you know, from that boat of reason and trying to desperately to step out onto that shore of faith. And what a difficult step that that is for us. And it was that same kind of difficulty. I just could not get there. And I made a very conscious decision at that point in time. You know what? I don't want anything else to do with you. I'm done. 
I was 17 years old. Um, I'm still living in my parents' home, so I'm still going to church. That's what you do in my parents' home, certainly if I wanted to continue to drink. So I continued to go to church. Everything on the outside changed, but everything on the inside had changed. There was no fear about that decision. It was almost a sense of relief, like, whoo, got one less thing that I've got to worry about disappointing. That's how I felt. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. The first thing in, in treatment, I see the steps on the wall. I remember going through, you know, we work them pretty quickly when we're new. I look through the steps. I see the first one says, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. Who are you trying to kid? Maybe that kid's in full. Some of you dodos out there, but I am Southern Baptist. I know exactly who you're talking about. You're talking about God. And as a matter of fact, if you go on down and read step three, they actually say God on there. So it was like those might cause me a bit of trouble. But let me look on and, you know, I finished the rest of the steps while I was in treatment. And so I get out of treatment, I go and start working with a sponsor, and she informs me that, no, we haven't. But now I've got a real issue because I'm thinking I cannot work steps two and three because I do not have a relationship with God, nor do I want one. The other thing, by this time, I've got a few months of sobriety, and I'm thinking to myself, I hear people saying that they pray every morning and ask God to help keep them sober, and that they thank Him every night. Hallelujah, they're sober another day. Well, I'm not asking God every morning to help keep me sober, but I'm staying sober. The one thing that I knew is that when I hung out with you, I was staying sober. I really believed that me on my own, I would drink. So you, and I even heard it in a meeting, God, G-O-D, group of drunks. And so you became my first higher power. Um, and it absolutely worked. Um, that group of drunks later were to give me good orderly direction. Again, I'm figuring I got a God. It's just a little different than the one I grew up with, but I'm hanging out with you. I'm staying sober. Okay, that'll work. And it works until it doesn't. <laughs> and unfortunately, I can't tell you when it's going to necessarily stop working. Um, our book says there is one power. May you find him now. I um, mean, I know today that for me that meant that I was going to have to get a honest to God, higher power of my own. And it was not going to be able to be you. You know, used to the magic would happen. I would feel bad. I would go to a meeting and I instantaneously felt better. I would feel bad. I would pick up the phone. I would call my sponsor. I would talk to her. Instantaneously, I felt better. That quit working. I'd go to meetings and I still felt horrible. I tell you, the other God that really got me to where I needed to be was gift of desperation. Because when I got desperate enough was the night that I fell to my knees rocking back and forth in so much emotional and spiritual pain that it felt physical. And that night when I was out of all other options, I reached out and I said, God, please help me. I'm five and a half years sober when I say this. And man, did he ever. Some amazing things started happening in my sobriety. For the first time, I really knew that I had plugged in. That night that I fell to my knees, uh, the most amazing thing, I picked up the big book. It probably still cracked at that point. Um, it's not a good sign if your book cracks. Just in case you don't know, means you don't open it much. Um, and I hadn't. I'm certain at some point uh, a sponsor probably pointed me here, but that night it seemed to me that God pointed me to this area of the book. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek Him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive. Never. It's a huge word. Never. 
exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. And for the first time in my sobriety, I thought maybe that means even me. And I started turning things around and doing a lot of things differently and following sponsor's direction. And I got in and I started working steps. In fact, I got so well, I met another him. And uh, still a sponsor shaking her head. And, but I'm certain, I mean, at least this one's got a job. <laughs> I mean, that must be love. And, uh, and let me tell you whether, one other really cool thing. I'd been dating a month. I had a motorcycle when we met. And a month after we started dating, he got him a motorcycle. How romantic is that? He wanted a motorcycle to ride with me, his beloved. Now, he did not pay his rent that month. Um, <laughs> Because he bought the motorcycle, but isn't that so romantic? No, it's not. For anybody that's thinking maybe it is, what that means is for the next however many years that you're going to attach yourself to this man, he's not going to pay rent. That's what that means. Um, And that's exactly what happened. We got married at six months because I was so certain he was sent from God. Because see, our book talks about this too. It's amazing the stuff in here. It says when you start to get this new relationship with God... Be very, very careful. Sometimes you can actually start to think that the great things that are in your head are actually of God. It talks about that in this book. It talks about it in the 12 and 12. It talks about it everywhere. And yet I was just certain he was of God. I knew it. And uh, for the next seven years, it was to be insane. We saw the country via U-Haul. He just had a hard time keeping a job. And so we moved a lot. And we finally ended up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Thank you, God. I found the woman that is still my sponsor today. Um, And she actually wanted me to start doing some things differently. Um, See, it's real easy for me to blame it on him. As a matter of fact, our book talks about, it's amazing, this book, really, the stuff that's in here. Um, uh, Let's see, where it talks about how we're just such the tornado running through people's lives. And, you know, we start to think, wow, isn't it great? Man, I have actually stopped drinking. Um, It's just a wonderful thing. I'm still really stinking all over the place. I'm making decisions based on self. I'm not paying any attention to anything else. But, hey, isn't it great? I'm not drinking. And that's the kind of example of Alcoholics Anonymous that I was to my family. Horrible. They're watching me. Okay, maybe she's not drinking, but... God, look at her life. It's insane. It's insane. And yet I sit back and I look at them and I go, they're judging me. You know, if they could just learn to accept me, if they could just learn to love me for who I am, if they could learn to just accept me, have that unconditional love that people in Alcoholics Anonymous give, that's on them. They should be treating me kind no matter what. I... uh, During that period of time when I was married uh, to him, uh, we ended up living in a tent out at uh, Joe Pool Lake. We, uh, you know, when you can't afford to play for a place to live, they kind of want you to leave. And uh, and we put our things in storage and we went out and lived in a tent. I want a little disclosure. There were people that offered a place for my son and I to come and live. (laughs) They just did not want him coming as well. Oh, and I can't leave my husband. (laughs) So we lived in a tent uh, for six weeks. Uh, I'm here to tell you, you can stay sober, live in a tent, uh, and, you know, and get through it. And we did. And uh, God ended up helping us to find a place to live, literally. And uh, 
But ultimately, that marriage, I was able to finally walk away. Uh, he had an affair with one of the girls I sponsor. And, you know, the, the great news that happened before that, though, is that I really, truly started practicing spiritual principles, whether he was or not. Even if he was yelling and screaming, I didn't. I didn't participate anymore. I started treating him with kindness, even though he was nothing but ugly to me. I started doing those things, and a most amazing thing happened. It turns out that it wasn't him that was making me so miserable. It was me that was making me so miserable. And as a result of changing my actions, I got peace. I got freedom. And so when that day came that I found out about the affair, was I angry and hurt? No question. But a short time later, was I able to look back and see where I had truly done everything that I could do, that I could have no regrets in the situation? Absolutely. Freedom. Great events coming to pass. The great events haven't necessarily meant being, been the great brand new car, although I did just get one of those recently. Um, <laughs> Stay sober 26 years, and it's just amazing what can happen. Uh, it's not uh, the great house, although I really have kind of a great house today, too. Um, that freedom that I got, that's the most amazing thing. Knowing that I was responsible for how I felt, not another human being. I, boy, I busted my butt. I did everything this sponsor told me to do. And my life started showing the results of that in the most amazing way. Um, my parents, I told you I had issues with them. I thought it was because of how they were treating me. Um, I really wanted my relationship with them to be different, but I didn't know what I needed to do. Again, when I'm seeking, when I'm truly honestly seeking the answers, God will put just the right person with just the right information in my life. And he did in the form of somebody talking about their life, their experiences. We had so many similar experiences. She talked about her parents in the amends process, talked about sitting down and making these amends with them, which I had done, and then she talked about the money. Oh, no. I hadn't done a thing about the money. I knew I owed him money. I knew I owed him a lot of money. But I'm a single mom most of the time. I can live in paycheck to paycheck. How in the world can I afford to do anything like that? One day at a time. That's how we do it. I sat down and I talked to my sponsor, and she said, Tracy, how much do you owe him? I'm like, I don't know, a lot. She said, well, what can you afford to pay him every single week, no matter what happens? And we looked at my finances, and I decided I could pay $25 a week. You know, I found out it wouldn't have mattered if all I could have paid him was 25 cents a week. And get this, the relationship with them doesn't change on the last payment. It changes on the first because I was the one that changed. I was the one that realized the reason I'm uncomfortable around them is not because of the way that they're treating me. The reason I'm uncomfortable around them is because I have not cleared away all the wreckage of my past with them. That's why I'm uncomfortable around them. Got nothing to do with them. And so again, the freedom, the great event that came as a result of doing the next right thing that you guys talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. An amazing thing. I met my husband, um, this third one <laughs> that I'm still married to. Uh, some of you actually may have heard him in Branson uh, this past November, October. I think it was October. And, um, and he is an amazing man. And, you know, we did things a lot different this go around than I ever had before. And uh, uh, I, uh, you know, my sponsor had some rules. I said, no problem. You know, when I was at that desperate place and said, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, anything. You tell me to do. Just a short year later, you want me to do what? <laughs> I mean, because let me tell you, you're going to agree with me. I know. No sex for the first six months. I was like, that's not a problem. It is never a problem till the first date. But, but before that, it's never a problem. 
And I thought, that's not a problem. And she said, no, that includes no hugging and no kissing. Don't you think that's a little drastic? I thought it was horribly drastic that she was taking it a bit too far. Um, I argued with her. I tried to convince her. You know, uh, in the third step in our book, it's really great. It talks about how we're determined to get our way. And we'll go about it real nice and sweet. And when that doesn't work, we'll get ugly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I tried every which way. And it took a woman that had been my sponsor for eight years to say to me, Tracy, you will either do what I tell you to do in regards to this or I will not sponsor you anymore. Why did it have to take that? I mean, look at everything I had gotten up to this point by following directions. But one more time, I'm hanging on to self. I'm hanging on to what I want. But you know what? I followed her directions. I followed them. I complained about it for quite some time, but I followed them. At about four and a half months into our dating, and let me tell you, when you can't touch, kiss, nothing, there is not much left but talking. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) talking and more talking. Doug said to me, I am not going to see a movie with you until I can put my arm around you. I am not going to put my arm around you in the movie and then we get in trouble. I'm just not going to do it. So we're not going to see any movies. So we like bold, putt-putt, talked and talked. And for God's sakes, we talked about everything. It's amazing. Everything. We talked about if one of our parents was to die, would you be okay with them coming uh, to live with you to take care of them? We talked about, you know, with children, what do you think is appropriate discipline? We talked about, hey, uh, you know, as far as my meetings are concerned and your meetings are concerned, you know, where do we stand with that? What are our values and principles? What are the things that mean the most to us? We talked about it all. I can honestly tell you to this day, which, what, uh, married 12 and a half years now, together 13 and a half years, and I have not learned anything of significance since the first four and a half months that we dated. That's how I know how to make, to find out about relationships, to get to know somebody. Because that pounding of the heart, you know, and when you start sweating, when you see somebody across the room, that's not it. It's just not. It's lust. It's a physical reaction. What's going to happen on the days when things get tough? I've seen couples that looked like they were just great for each other, and then they had kids, and everything fell apart because they are on such different ends of the spectrum where discipline is concerned. We talked about everything. At four and a half months, my sponsor called me up. She goes, oh, by the way, you and Doug can hold hands and kiss. Click. I didn't even say goodbye to her. (laughs) I picked up the phone and I called Doug. I'm like, get over here right now. And he's like, why? I said, we can hug and kiss. He said, I'm on my way. And, uh, And we did. We didn't talk that night. We hugged and we kissed and we hugged and we kissed. Later, I say to my sponsor, I wait a couple of weeks. You've got to make sure that that new direction has got a good foothold before you try to question it. And I said to her, you know, it was only four and a half months. It wasn't six months. Why did you, you know, let us hug and kiss? And she said, Tracy, you know, for the last several years, you have followed every direction that I've given you. And you'll do what I tell you to do. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're changing. She said, in the sixth step of the 12 and 12, it talks about that this is the step that separates the men from the boys. You know what the difference between the boys and the men are? At the end of the chapter, it tells you. It says that the boys are after a self-determined objective, where the men are about the perfect objective, which is of God. 
See, I think I know what's down the road for me. I think I know what my life should look like. So therefore, I determine what actions that I need to take to get there. And I've done that over and over, making decisions based on self that later put me in a position to be hurt. Over and over again. I don't know what life's got in store for me down the road. You know, Doug and I did get married, and everything was going great, and we did what we were supposed to, and then my dad fell off the roof and you know, of his house, and he was to be in a coma for the next three months in the hospital for six months. Everything is crazy and insane, and in the process of that, I went to the hospital one day to be with my mom and dad again, and my mom had this card for me, and it was a thank you card, and it said, Tracy, I just want to thank you. You've given me the most precious gift of any of my children, and that is the gift of your time. Words without actions mean nothing, but your words mean something today because you follow them up with action. As a final gift, I want you to know that there's no longer a sheet of paper at our house with an amount on it. So do whatever you need to do, a check mark or a gold star, because your financial debt to us is paid in full. And it wasn't even close to being paid. Not at all. And I say to my mom, you know, look, hey, I really appreciate it, but I really want to keep paying you this money. I mean, I should have been paying it to you all along. And, you know, I'm okay. We're okay. Let me keep paying it, especially with everything going on right now. And she turns and she looks at me and she said, Tracy, it was never about the money. I still didn't get it. I still did not get it. My parents, when I thought they didn't love me unconditionally, they always did. You know what they didn't have for me? Respect. How could they? I hadn't taken respectable actions where they were concerned. In my household, you do what you say you're going to do. You pay back money that's owed. That's the things that I was taught in my family. They just didn't respect me. And you know what? Forget the money. All the other things, those decisions based on self, they didn't have any respect for those either. Who would? The way that I treated my son, the relationship from relationship and from man to man to man, these real great guys that I just have to have, and I put my son in harm's way because, you know, hey, if it's, if it's hurting anybody, it's only hurting me, not him, not even thinking about him. I'm thinking about what I want. I got to hear about some of the damage later on in some of those relationships that was caused to my son. I also sat that son down when he was nine, and I made amends to him, and I followed my sponsor's direction, and I talked to him. I asked my son a few years later, there was one point where he was actually, he had some clean time, and I said, do you remember me making amends to you? He told me what I had on, clothing-wise. He told me what he had on. He told me what restaurant that we were sitting at. I could have told you none of it. It had an impact. It had a great impact on him. But even more so, it had a huge impact on me. Our book says, right after the part in the amends, it says, but this is not an end. It is just a beginning. So we make these amends, and then what is my job, especially where this child is concerned, to be the best mother that I can be, to actually put him ahead of me for once in my life, put somebody else ahead of me. And I started doing that, and I became an awesome mom to that son. Damaged, yeah, I did it. But I did the best that I could to write it and do the best that I could to be the best mom. I've told you, you know, I started off talking about my sons in prison. And it breaks my heart. 
But I am so grateful for the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because they have given me the freedom to just love this child, to be able to just love him, to not judge him for the most part, to not be angry at him for the most part, but to not also have to save him. To let him be able to hit his bottom the way that he needed to hit it without me trying to get in there and thinking that, oh my gosh, this is all my fault. Because that's what I think left to me. I'm so self-centered, I still think it's about me. And it's not. Thank God it's not. I love him. I'm hoping that I'm going to hear a word pretty soon that, hey, I've been given 30 days and I get to get out. I'm hoping to hear that soon. And this son that I saw actually get some clean time. He became a a father. He made me a grandmother. And this precious eight-month-old baby that he leaves at home to go to the bar. Boy, talk about letting go. I had learned how to let go of him, but wow, what about this baby? Somebody's got to stand up for her. If I stand up for her, am I standing against him? Maybe. I get Audrey every week. I get her on Sundays to Monday. I get to see that precious little girl every single week. And as much as I enjoy her and I am her momo, I don't really get that because I was momo for a long time, but then my, then my husband became Popo, and now, so since he's Popo, I'm momo. <laughs> anyway, don't quite know how that happened. I thought I was a lot more important than Popo was. But, uh, you know, it's like I've got this precious girl and... It just breaks my heart at the same time of what my son is missing. But you know what? I see somebody like Josh and I think anything is possible. He's got the opportunity to get out and to become the father to her, to become the man that he needs to become for him and for God. But even when he gets out, it's out of my hands. Not my business, not my job. How can I love you? How can I support you without doing it for you? That's what I know today. I told you, I don't know what life's got in store. Doug and I went through a lot of difficulties there for a while. We went through my dad's injury, my son's insanity, you know, and we lost ourselves in that process. And we ended up separated for six months, and it was a very difficult time. But because of the principles of this program, we were able to bring that marriage back together because it was never God's will that it break apart to begin with. I'm going to tell you the biggest gift I got during that period of time. I was so devastated. Doug was the one that wanted to leave. Doug was the one that didn't want to be married to me anymore. Doug was the one that didn't think that he loved me anymore. And I was devastated by that. And I kept thinking in my heart, God, I just, I can't believe this is your will. I just can't get there. Please, I can't get there. And I cannot live. I cannot live the rest of my life feeling this way, wanting him, but not being able to have him. And God gave me another one of those great events, and it was this. Tracy, it is not my will for your marriage to be broken up. But should he take those actions, should he follow through, I will change your heart. I will change the desires in your being. That's the God that you gave me amazing. My dad died. You walked me through it. I was able to be there for my mom. You were there for me. I'm there for my mom. She knows. She counts on me today. Amazing. Great events. That child of mine, who knows? 
but one day at a time, the pages continue to turn in this life, and I just get to go, God, what would you have me do? And also, who would you have me be today? At the end of 164, there's this last paragraph that it finishes up after the great events, and it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.